0: The reading of God's word, Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom in the patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in the book, send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna. He had his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches
1: all right so we're we're uh, we're moving on here in the book of revelation we started this uh, incredible book last week And I would encourage you, if by chance you weren't here or you weren't watching online and you missed last week, it might be helpful for you to go back at some point when you have opportunity and just listen to the sermon from last week, because part of what we did in that sermon was sort of lay lay the groundwork, give you the lay of the land for the book of Revelation, what it's about, and and how it operates as apocalyptic literature, uh, right, which is important because, again, we talked about last week how apocalyptic literature is something of a foreign language to us. We talked about that and might just give you a, might just be helpful for you in terms of listening to these sermons uh moving forward. Okay? Uh but today, uh we have this man this glorious vision of Jesus Christ here at the start of the book, right before the book gets into uh boy any of the intricacies and any of the fun questions that come up as you read through the book of before we get into any of that, right John just gives us this stirring vision of Jesus Christ, which is in many ways going to be kind of like the center of this whole book. And I think as John intends it to be the center of the church and the lives of the people in the church, uh, or sort of like this uh, all-consuming vision of Christ that should lie at the center of the life of God's people. Uh, this, uh, we're in this phase as a family right now where we are getting to know and enjoy uh, the delightful dynamic of a three-year-old boy, <laughs> which we never had before, right? We had all girls there initially, and so it's just been this wonderful blessing since Georgia and Jeffrey came into our home, right? Uh, but we're learning for the first time uh, what it is to have a two-, three-year-old boy in the house, and we're learning of this incredible, ample supply of energy that young boys have. Um, and, and sometimes Jeffrey, boy, he will get so animated, so worked up, and he'll be at something, and he'll be so focused, like laser-type focused, That's really hard to get his attention. Which is really important sometimes, because we need to get his attention. Jeffrey, you shouldn't be running around chasing your, your your older sister with a stick. Despite what you may think, she doesn't like to be beat over the head, even if you are playing bad guys and good guys, or whatever it is. So sometimes we have to get Jeffrey's attention. And so I'm calling to him, Jeffrey, stop that. Hey, yo, boy! <laughs> All right? And he knows I'm in the room. He can hear my voice. Maybe even knows that I am father who has the power to enact uncomfortable disciplinary procedures or do not listening, but he doesn't care. He's got this laser focus and he's just chasing Georgia around with a stick or whatever it is, such that I almost like physically have to get in his way, right? And disrupt his, whatever it is he's doing. And I have to like overwhelm him and consume him with me just so he'll put his attention on me and just listen very clearly. You know, and I, and I I wonder if sometimes Jesus feels that way with us. When you think about it, our lives are filled with so many things. You know, from the moment we wake up in the morning to the moment we go to bed, boy, there's uh, text messages and emails and app notifications waiting for you as soon as you flip your phone on. There's news headlines and Facebook feeds ready to activate your mind, get your mind thinking and perhaps worrying about this, that, or the other. As soon as you wake up there's kids that got to be fed and clothed and taken here and there and wherever right and then you've got your your long list of responsibilities and deadlines and projects and obligations at work or maybe your homework or the tests and the things that you're studying for at school we have these watches Fitbits that remind us that we have to get up and take our five thousand more steps, or else you are going to get heart disease and die a premature death at some point, right? So we got to worry about that. And then maybe even you know you just come home and there's a list of things maybe that you would just like to do. A list of things you want to get caught up around the house, or maybe some shows you're binging on Netflix, or a book that you've been trying to read for forever, right? So there's just all this stuff going on. We know that our lives are busy. They're ordered. They're scheduled. So much so that you come to the end of the day, and you think back over the day, and I wonder, okay, what in the world was kind of like the, the controlling center of all, all of that? What, what in the world? Or, Or more specifically, you come to the end of the day, and you think, okay, was I able today to give Jesus more than a passing thought or a passing prayer, let alone make him the operational center of my life? out of which everything else kind of flowed, and everything else that I did or the the way I thought about it it was all oriented towards. Uh, If you're here with us this morning and you're new to to Christianity or you're curious about Jesus Christ or you're watching online or whatever it is, you know, Christianity operates out of this convicting principle that life that is good Life that is rich and satisfying, life that is full and purposeful and rich with meaning, is life that has as its center Jesus Christ, the one through whom all life was given. Jesus Christ as he reveals himself. right, And yet we all know that sometimes... Because we're caught up in this, that, and the other, because our minds are thinking about this or worrying about this or full of anxious thoughts or whatever it is, right? Sometimes we just need this arresting vision or arresting sense of Jesus' presence to overwhelm us, to consume us, such that we can see him in all of his glory and put him back in the center of life and have our life Our thoughts and our actions in some way all oriented around him, relating to him, flowing out of him and all that he is. And in a sense, for me, this is what this vision does. And I think this is what John intends this vision to do for the churches that he's writing to. It's this compelling, glorious vision of Jesus Christ that should captivate and overwhelm his people such that it's just their natural reaction to bow and worship and move him into the center of their life. And so our goal this morning is to just kind of sit with the text, kind of soak in and absorb this wonderful vision. It's actually a difficult passage to preach, well, for me anyway, because it's such an incredible vision. I feel like you're sitting at a, you know, we're we're just feeding off the the mouth of a fire hose. There's so much content in here. There's so much that I would love to talk about, where I probably don't even get to be able to get to the half of it. Which, by the way, it's just a side. I would encourage you. This is part of what Revelation does. It gives you these incredible images that we can touch on and try to you know, apply in the sermon. But man, there's so much opportunity for you to take the image back home and to just kind of soak it in, contemplate it, think about it, meditate on it. You could spend the whole week just with these 10, 11 verses as your devotional material, if you ask me. So our goal this morning is just to kind of walk through it. I'm going to make a few pointers uh, along the way, what this might be referring to and such, and then we'll try to make some just simple application this morning, okay? All right, let's talk about it. So again, we backed it up actually to the last couple verses we read from last week to give a little bit, remind us again of the context. Is John writing to these seven churches, probably with the intention of it going to all the churches. Um, and he says from the very beginning, I, John, your brother... And partner with you in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance in Jesus Christ. Right, and we talked about that, that line last week. We talked about a couple things that for John, right, tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance, that's not off in the future, that's not some distant future stuff. That is that's all underway in the here and now. Right, as John literally writes, imprisoned on the island of Patmos because he was giving testimony to Jesus Christ and to the Word of God, and he's suffering for it now in prison in the island of Patmos, he can say, I, John, your brother and your partner in the tribulation. He says partner because the churches are starting to experience that as well too. Right? We talked about that to, at this stage in history, to entrust your life to Jesus, to claim Jesus, is maybe to face ostracization from your family, your neighborhood, your workplace. Uh, and even in some places in the Roman Empire start to experience very physical persecution. And so John writes, your faithful partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance. And the other thing, well, and we said that, you know, part of the whole meaning of the, part of the whole purpose of the book is to help us to understand how those things go together. How is it that Christ can be king? And I can have been brought into this incredible kingdom, and yet I suffer tribulation. To what end would be another way of phrasing that question. And again, uh, we'll get there as we go. All right, but so as he's there, John says uh, he hears a voice loud like a trumpet saying to him, write down the things that you see and send it off to these seven churches. And so John, he turns to see the voice of him who was speaking to him. And the first thing that he sees are these seven lampstands. And among other things, lampstands, you would find lampstands in the temple, in the Old Testament temple, and would give light throughout the temple, and they would be sort of these symbolic reminders that as God's presence was there in the temple, that presence came with light and with life. So he sees these lampstands, and then he sees one like a son of man, decked out in all of his priestly attire, He's got the long garment all the way around to the ground. He's got the golden sash around his chest, which is probably indicating that this is a priestly figure doing what priests do. They're walking amidst the lampstands. They're tending the lampstands, tending the wicks, making sure there's fuel in the lamps, making sure the dust and the cobwebs are cleared off so that the lamps can light uh, and shine brightly. And, okay, so you have this reference to Jesus as the Son of Man which again is something that the book of Revelation is going to do a lot, and that it borrows imagery from the Old Testament all over the place. And this is actually an image that's borrowed from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, which is another book written in the context of great suffering. The Israelites had been swept away from their homelands, from their life, from their families, Uh, their suffering in exile, imprisoned in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. And in the midst of their hardship and their trial, Daniel gets this, he gets multiple visions, but one of his visions in chapter 7 is this vision of one like a son of man who comes on the clouds to the ancient of days, the eternal creator God, and to this one like a son of man is given a kingdom and a dominion. Glory and power and people from every tongue, tribe, and nation recognize it, see it, and fall down in worship of it. And this kingdom is eternal, and it says this kingdom will never perish and never fade and go away. And this dream, this vision from Daniel became, you know, a real source of the hope of God's people. The Israelites, throughout the ages, they were looking forward, they were longing for the day when this ancient, or this one like a son of man, this would be given a kingdom. This one who would be their Messiah figure, which is significant, because here's John saying, I see this one like a son of man, here, now, walking among these lampstands. He's got hair, white as wool. Uh, He's got these eyes that uh, blaze like fire. There's probably a Uh, a symbol of these eyes that are able to pierce and penetrate and burn away any kind of like false veneer or false covering that we put over things it's almost like the eyes of a judge who is able to see beyond all that to burn all that away and to see the true substance of life of our hearts and lives whatever i was thinking about this on friday I got a call from the sprint lady that's our cell phone service sprint and uh and you got a call in the afternoon, and you had that little pause in between when I say hello. So, you know, it's a telemarketing call. But I had actually been needing to talk to somebody from Sprint about something regarding Amy's phone. So I said, okay, I'll sit and listen to this or whatever. And she went through her spiel and said, you know, man, you've been a loyal, faithful customer of ours for three, four years now. We would like to show our appreciation to you. Uh, and in the start of this new year, 2022, we, wanna, we would love to just give you some things as a token of our appreciation. We're going to give you a nice little smartwatch. Uh we would love to give you I don't know these le- I don't know what's, what what the, what they are these little tracker things where if you lose your keys or you lose your phone and you have this attached to it, we can tell you exactly where it is and I think well sometimes Amy spends a better part of her day looking for her keys or her phone so this might be a good thing. I'll get one of those. Right so I said, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, whatever, son. You know, I'll take that." Um you know because I'm I'm trying to get through all the spiel so I can talk to her about this issue regarding Amy's phone or whatever. And uh the things she didn't tell me as that all of these things come with monthly service fees as well too? They do to activate these. I could have swore she actually told me this isn't going to affect your bill at all. But whatever, maybe she didn't. But uh, after I had signed all this stuff on, you know, on my emails or whatever, and the phone, I went back after the phone call and looked at everything that I just signed. And well, look at this price now that's jacking up my phone bill. So anyway, I got to send all this stuff back and have another conversation with the Sprint people. <laughs> the point being. <laughs> This happened on Friday, uh, when I happened to be working on a sermon, and boy, I said, I wish I could have had some of these eyes of blazing fire that could have been seen past all this sales pitch and all this junk to see what was really going on, she was just trying to jack up my phone bills, so I would send them more money, right? That's sort of the picture here. This is the eyes of a judge who has these eyes of flames of fire they are able to see past all the junk and the garbage and the false sales pitches and the political talk and all this stuff to see truly which is right, wrong, good, evil, and to judge. Says he has feet like burnished bronze. Bronze that's been purified through fire right so there's there's no nothing defiled in it there's nothing impure in it and bronze is one of those more sturdy steady metals maybe not so much like gold or whatever that might be a little more, more soft or malleable bronze is strong right so you've got this pure undefiled foundation at the feet which is unshakable and unmovable because he has voice like many waters you know imagine sitting at the Feet of a waterfall, right, that's pouring over the top, and you're trying to have a conversation, but all you can hear is just the thundering noise of the waters. Oh, and then in his hand, this is a cool vision. He has these seven stars in his hand. Well, I think this is particularly cool, is that in in ancient Roman world, uh, people were very fascinated with the positions of the stars in the heavens. And they had this kind of belief and convictions that if you could read the stars appropriately, you get a good sense of how life was going to play out. Such that if you were an astrologer or one who had even a remotely good track record of proving or predicting certain events based on the movement of the stars, right, you were going to be in high demand. The king or the emperor was going to pay mightily for your services so that he could come and consult you before he goes off into battle. Or before he would make a certain decision or engage in a treaty or enact certain kingdom policies. He was going to want to, hey, what are the stars saying here? And and the way this worked in the ancient world, the way that astrology worked, I don't know much about it. But what I think I understand is that, you know, if you look up in the stars at night, the general pattern of the stars does not change. It, It shifts across the night sky. Right, But if you think about like the constellations or you think about the Big Dipper, the Big Dipper itself doesn't change one night it's the big Dipper, the next night it's the big salad fork or something, right, or Orion's belt doesn't become Orion's Philly's hat or something along right. The, the constellations they they move, but they stay the same, okay, but what what does change is that there are these handful of stars that seem to move you know freely or more chaotically with no rhyme or reason throughout the night sky we know them now as planets that operate on their own different orbit right and so some night you know if you're out if you go out in january you might maybe i don't know but you might see jupiter in relation to the big dipper in this way and then if you come back in september well maybe jupiter's over here in relation to the the big dipper Right, And so the ancients, the ancient astrologers, they would look at these seven stars or seven lights, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and then the moon and the sun to kind of tell them how life was going to play out or how the affairs of life were going to unfold. So you start to see the image here, right? Who's who's holding these seven movable stars that indicate how the future is going to play out? Who's holding these in the palm of his hand? Jesus Christ this is a wonderful picture symbolic vision of the sovereign authority of Jesus over all the affairs of history the sovereign authority of Jesus who is able to steer and move and dictate the course of history so that it unfolds exactly the way he intends it for his people Right, So those of you who are obsessed looking up into the stars to try to figure out how things are going to go, look to this Jesus who holds the stars in the palm of his hand. Or for those of you who are concerned or worried about the affairs of life, who are filled with anxiety or fear or consuming thoughts about how today is going to unfold or tomorrow or the next day, man, look to this Jesus who has sovereign authority over all the affairs of history and moves history according to his good purpose for the sake of his people. See, again, each one of these images, I feel like you could stop and preach a whole sermon on, but we've got to keep going. Right? It talks about um, Jesus who has a sharp two-edged sword now coming out of his mouth. Obviously, a sword in ancient world, that was your weapon of choice as you went into battle. Right? So this is probably just a picture of you know, Jesus' word as being able to pierce and to penetrate hearts and lives. That Jesus' word, what comes out of his mouth, is powerful. And that it can affect what he intends to accomplish just by his words coming out that can affect what he intends to accomplish in his kingdom and all throughout creation. This word that you know, could calm the storms in the Sea of Galilee. Or this word that could call Lazarus out of the tomb after he's begun to rot in there for the past couple days. Or this word that could drop Roman centurions to their knees in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus declares to them, I am. Or this word which could affect forgiveness and atonement for sinners. When Jesus is on the cross, as people are thrusting spears in his side, he's crying out to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right? This word coming out of this Jesus is sharper than any two-edged sword and is able to affect what he intends for his kingdom. And it says in verse 16, he had a face like the sun shining in his full strength. This is probably the image that stood out to me the most this week. Maybe just because we're in that season of the year where we don't see the sun a whole lot or as much, right? Days are short, nights are longer. Not to mention it's that gloomy time of year where there's not a whole lot of color in the trees and the leaves and uh, just... Maybe the skies just seem a little bit more gray than normal. And for any of us in dealing with seasonal affective disorder, this is a difficult time. And we know that man, a day like yesterday where the sun is shining in full strength is just this, you know, just great source of just blessing. Or if you have like a week like we did last week where it was bitter cold or like this morning where it's bitter cold and yet the sun is shining. Like it's almost that makes all the world of a difference. You can walk out into the bitter cold, but man, sometimes you just feel the rays of the sun and it just warms you and it's just a source of blessing. All right, and I think that's part of the picture here. Right, think about the old Jewish blessings. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you his peace. Or the prayers of the psalmist in Psalm 80 where, you know, it cries out to the Lord, restore us, shine your face on us that we may be saved. Right? That's the picture. And, and see, so you put this all together and you see this Jesus and all of his sovereign authority with his eyes of blazing fire, with his feet of burnished bronze. And then you see that all of this is turned towards his people. And he's shining, he's wielding it towards them. He's like the sun shining on them in full strength. All of this, all that Jesus is, is wielded towards his people for their blessing and for their life. And John sees it, and he falls on his face as though dead. There's going to be a lot of people doing that, a lot of creatures doing that throughout the book of Revelation, falling before this Jesus which is a sign of humility, a sign of respect. think of a traditional culture where you bring your head below the head of the other as a sign of respect, right, but even more than that, it will often be uh, connected to worship. What is John doing here? He's falling on his face uh, ultimately in worship, like I like that line as though dead, like he's in the face in the presence of this Christ It's like Everything in him, all that he is or whatever he's consumed with, it it just kind of fades away. It just goes away as if he were dead in worship before this Christ. And again, you know, just see that in the broader context. You know, see it, John writing from prison. See it, John writing and saying this. You know, removed from his family, removed from his life, removed from his home, removed from everything that was comfortable and familiar to him. And in this situation where, for sure, uh, he wonders what life is going to be like tomorrow or the next day. He surely is filled with anxious thoughts or he surely is with concerning thoughts of where is my life and my sustenance going to come. Right? And yet the picture is in the midst of all of that. Yet, when he has this vision of Christ, it leads him into just utter worship which is going to be part of the message of the book, right? That no matter the circumstance, no matter even the hardship and the trials and the tribulation that you endure, yet to have this overwhelming sense of the presence of Jesus and to see Jesus in your mind's eye as he reveals himself, And to be overwhelmed with his presence is able to overpower all of those circumstances, all of those trials, all of those tribulations, and lead you in full, joyful worship. Well, the hand of Christ comes on his shoulder and says, Fear not. And which is an incredible thing, I would imagine, for John to hear. And he says, I am the first and the last. Uh, which is significant, right? This is uh, what verse are we up to now? This is uh, verse seventeen. He says, "Fear not, I am the first and the last." And part of the reason why that's significant, who was it last week that essentially said, "I am the first and the last"? He said, "I am the Alpha and the Omega, which is the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet." Who was it that said, "I am the first and the last"? The Alpha and the Omega last week. It was God Himself who said that, right? And so I just want to highlight this. This is really significant. What you're also going to find in the book of Revelation are some of the uh, strongest statements in the whole New Testament about the full divinity of Christ. That to see Jesus is to see God himself. That Jesus is fully divine. He is the fully divine Son of God. He is the full, fully divine God in the flesh. And that to worship Christ, to bow at the feet of Jesus is to worship God himself. Uh, and this is actually something that would get the early church in trouble. Right? As they would talk about Jesus as not being just one way among many to have access to God or to learn a little bit about God or a little bit about who God is and what he's up to. The Christians were going around with these absolutist claims, know that Jesus is God. And as such, that is the only way to God because he is God in the flesh who has come and revealed God in all of his fullness to us in his very person. We'll have plenty of opportunity to talk more about that throughout the rest of the book, so just tuck that away. But then he says, okay, so I'm the first and the last. And then he goes on to talk about having him doing the thing that no other god, <laughs> no other god throughout all the annals of ancient history, no other god throughout ancient mythology, or no other god throughout any of ancient literature, or no other god throughout any religious system, all throughout history and all over the world would ever dare to do. He says, I've, I've died. I suffered and died. No other God throughout history or any other religious system would ever dare come and suffer death and do it in love for his people. But Jesus says, I am the first and the last and God in the flesh who has come and in love for my people entered into a dark and broken world and consumed in myself. All of the brokenness, all of the sinfulness, all of the wickedness, all of the brokenness of my people's hearts and lives, and consumed it in myself and suffered it unto death so that they might experience my life. So I am the first and the last, the one who died, but is the ever living one who lives now forevermore. Basically, basically declaring to the people that which we celebrate every year around Easter time. That yes, Jesus Christ came and suffered and died for our sinfulness and for the sinfulness of a broken world, and yet he didn't stay dead. But three days later, he came walking out of the tomb in triumph and in victory over death and in victory over his spiritual enemies that wield the power of death in the lives of his people. Which is why then he goes on to say, and I hold in my other hand, I guess, the keys to death and Hades. Right, which is another really powerful symbol. Man, so many symbols here we could just preach on by ourselves. But this symbol, right, because in the ancient world, it was, it was assumed that the powers of evil or that the spiritual forces of darkness or the rulers and the powers and the dominions and principalities, that they were the ones with the keys to death, with the keys to the domain of death in Hades. And yet here's Jesus saying, no, I have risen victorious over the powers of death. And so I hold now in my hand, the keys to death in Hades. So you imagine now, powers and principalities and the spiritual forces of darkness coming home after a long day, right, coming up to the gates of Hades and find out it's locked. Go digging around in their pockets. Where did I put those darn keys? And there's Jesus in the background shaking the keys. You looking for these? Right, which is also such a powerful image too, because it means that not only does Jesus have power to be raised from death himself, but now because he holds the keys, and now he's because he's the victorious conqueror, he can liberate his own people, even from the greatest enemy of all, from the power of death itself, and lead his people one day into full resurrection life. And I man, I, I can't stress enough this. This vision of Jesus with his blazing eyes and his feet of bronze, holding the stars in one hand, holding in the other hand the keys to death. Man, this was a vision that really empowered and motivated and inspired the ancient church. Because again, uh, by the time the book of Revelation is written, life is starting to get a little difficult for these Christians and it's only going to get worse. Right. This is written probably on the heels of Nero and some of the terrible things that he did to Christians, but it's only going to get worse from there. Right. You hear the stories of Christians who were torn limb from limb or impaled on stakes and covered in tar and lit on fire for Nero's garden parties, you know, or who were thrown to the lions and all that, you know, but it's a simple fact of history. It really is. It's a simple fact of history that in the midst of this tribulation and trial, the church exploded onto the scene and grew incredibly for, well, for a whole host of reasons, but for a couple of them. One, because it didn't waver from their testimony of Jesus Christ, and because two, when they were faced with death, their response was kind of like, meh. Right? When they would be, hauled off into the Colosseum to be thrown to the beast, or whatever. Or when they would be locked away in prison, or the emperor, or whoever it was, would be coming to enact his persecutions. Right, time and time again, what you would see from these Christians in the face of death was just kind of like, eh, okay, whatever. Not, not whatever, but, eh. And it was striking to anybody on the outside. Who are these Christians who face death with this sort of careless attitude? Who are these Christians and what is at the center of their life such that they're able to do this? And the answer was this vision of Jesus and all of his glory. And this Jesus who had conquered the power of death and holds in his keys, holds in his hand the keys to death and Hades. <laughs> so why would I fear that? And why would I be so overwhelmed in anxiety and concern over death when my king and my savior holds in his hands the keys? All right, we've got to get you home. Just a couple other things. Real quick, uh, last, um, last, perhaps most even most important part of the, about this whole vision, right? You see this Jesus in all of his glory and all of his sovereign authority and all of his conquering victory over death. And he comes back at the end, and he starts to talk about these lampstands again. And he tells us that these lampstands are actually the seven churches. Or actually, it's the Church of Christ in all of its fullness, right? There's that number seven again. And here's why that's so significant. Because where is Jesus? Where is this conquering king with all the sovereign authority and with the keys to death and Hades in his hand? In this vision, where is Jesus? He's in the midst of the lampstands. He's right there with his people, exercising all of that authority, all of that power, all of that victory for the life and for the good and for his purposes in his people. Right, this is who Jesus is. This is at the core of Jesus' theological I- identity. If you, will. or we could say, like this is even part of Jesus' own center, right? That he has this compulsion to always be near to his people, to exercise his power and his goodness and his grace and authority for the life of his people. Right, this is Jesus as we've always known him. This Jesus who was willing to incarnate himself into a dark and broken world, to leave the glories of heaven so that he might suffer alongside his people and deliver them. This Jesus who, when his people were out in the wilderness, standing in line to get baptized by John the Baptist, Jesus comes in to be with them and he stands in line to receive this baptism of forgiveness or repentance as well. Or this Jesus who is always going in search of the poor and the hungry and the needy and the outcasts and those who are missing out on life so that he might be near to them and be gracious to them. right? Or again, this Jesus who chooses to identify with his people so intimately, so deeply that he even takes upon himself their sinfulness, their brokenness so that he might suffer it, so that they don't have to and they might be recipients of his eternal life. Man, this vision is the stuff that causes church to grow like wildfire and causes churches to stay focused and to stay empowered and emboldened in the face of death. And man, this is a vision that if you just take it in and you receive it and you contemplate it and you meditate on it, man, it can cause you to desire to put Jesus back into the center and to live life out of worship of him. It can empower you to want to be a faithful lampstand, that shines the light of Christ into a world that needs to see it. Right? This vision of Jesus will have you excited that Jesus would be the priest who comes and tends the lampstand and trims the wicks and fills the tanks and, you know, and does sometimes even the painful work of convicting and challenging and rebuking and warning and exhorting us so that we might more and more reflect Him and radiate his life and his goodness. And so I hope it does that for you this morning. I'll maybe leave you with three questions to take home, to consider. And the base, first basic question is, how are you doing living with this Jesus at the center of life? How are you doing, you know, not just giving Jesus a passing nod, or how are you not doing, how are you living, not how are you doing living not with just Jesus as a part of your life, but at the very center How are you doing drawing your hope and your comfort and your assurance from him at the center as opposed to some other thing? Second question I would ask you is, how are you doing as a lampstand? And does your testimony to Jesus match this Jesus as he's revealed here? Or... Is your testimony to Jesus maybe watered down a little bit more to, you know, so as to avoid conflict or tension or trial or strife or whatever? And then the last question I would just say, and thanks, you guys have were with me here we're a little over time today. But the last question I'm going to ask you is, how are you doing living life in full dependence upon this Jesus? I think it's interesting that, you know, they call the churches lampstands. They're not actually the lamp itself. The lamp itself is Jesus and the power of his spirit. We're just the lampstand. We're just the vessels, and we're just the carriers of that. And if we go out on our own thinking, oh, yes, I can be a prominent lampstand on my own strength, I'm going to fail miserably every time. And that's the whole point, right? We need to go out with Jesus at the center, inhabiting our whole life, empowering us, wielding his authority, wielding the brilliance of the sun, all for us, being the light, so that we can be effective lampstands. So how are you doing? Individual follower of Jesus. How are you doing? Church of Christ living in full dependence, in full humility, recognizing your utter need for Jesus every step along the way so that you might live life to the full, but also live fully in accordance with his purpose for you as his lampstand. Well, the prayer this morning is that God would sink this vision of Christ deep into your hearts that would be desire to move it towards the center so you would let him tend to your life, and so that you would be a good, faithful lampstand. All of us together would be a good, faithful witness and testimony to this risen Jesus until the great day when he comes again. And every eye, ever from every tongue, tribe, and nation all across the planet will see him and bow as though dead in joyful worship. May he lead us in that, for all for his honor and glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.